So I'd like to um, begin by welcoming you on behalf of the Center for the Study of World Religions. Uh, many of you I know and many of you have been here before. My name is Frank Clooney. I'm the director of the center. And I welcome you back for those of you who have been here before and welcome any of you who are here for the first time. Uh, the center, as you know, is a, a long time commitment and resource of Harvard Divinity School founded 1960, and we sponsor many programs during the year. You'll find here as you're um, leaving tonight or during the um, reception a list of our upcoming events, uh, including several more this week on Thursday that you're most welcome to come back for. Our event tonight is part of a book series, uh, one of the most enjoyable things that we do on a regular basis here at the center is celebrate new faculty books. Uh, too often in the academic life we wave at each other and say, oh, great book, uh, congratulations, I love the cover. And, and that can be the end of the experience. And so um, it's been a very successful opportunity and the center is delighted to support it to, to meet with authors, to hear how the book came about, what went into it, depending on the author, uh, some of the ups and downs in the book, the challenges were faced in the book, and so on. So we have two more book events tonight, uh, this semester that I'll point out to you in perhaps three. But uh, two weeks from tonight, uh, Professor Giovanni Bazzana, Kingdom of Bureaucracy, The Political Theology of Village Scribes in the Sayings Gospel Q, so related to New Testament texts. And then on March 22nd, about six weeks from now, uh, Professor Janet Giazzo, Being Human in a Buddhist World, An Intellectual History of Medicine in Early Modern Tibet. So you learn so much by coming to such a great variety of events, and you're welcome back for all of our um, book events as well as others. So our format tonight is fairly simple. Um, I'll introduce, first of all, our author, Aisha Balesu de Jesus, who will tell us about the book, how it came about, um, then I will introduce our three respondents, and I'll introduce them in due course, who are mission not to give book reports or cover everything in the book, but rather from the perspective of their own discipline and own interest, to raise some interesting questions and topics for discussion. After the three respondents have spoken, then Aisha gets a moment to um, respond, to take up and, and further dialogue with her interlocutors, and then finally we um, put the chairs in the front, and all four can interact with the audience, um, all of you. We end the, the official session at 7 o'clock, um, and then we have l more time for anyone who'd like to engage further and carry on a more informal conversation. So thank you all for coming. So I, I begin simply then by introducing Aisha Beleza de Jesus, um, our speaker tonight. Uh, Aisha is an associate professor of American, African American religions here at Harvard Divinity School. She is a cultural and social anthropologist, and she has in, uh, conducted ethnographic research with Santeria practitioners in Cuba and the United States since 2003. Here at Harvard, she is a member of the Cuba Policy Committee at the David Rockefeller Center for Latin American Studies. She is an associate of the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs and also a Ford Foundation Fellow. Some of her topical areas of research and teaching include ethnography of transnational religions, African diaspora religious studies, transnational feminisms, 
Anthropology of Media and the Internet, Postcolonial and Critical Theory, Anthropological, Anthropology of Caribbean and Latin American Studies, Media, Film, and Cultural Studies. Um, in recent years, indeed for more than 16 years now, she has worked with numerous grassroots, public policy, substance abuse, and other nonprofit organizations in the San Francisco Bay Area, advocating social justice issues, teen parent education, and nonviolence for youth of color. Her current research, which we'll hear about later when that book comes out, uh, is policing African diaspora religions, drawing on ethnographic research with police and religious practitioners in the United States, exploring questions of race, religion, and policing. She is interested in the role of racialized media in everyday policing contexts and the role of horror in the criminalization of particular religious practices. So we look forward to that book. Uh, among her many publications is the one we will discuss tonight, Electric Santeria, Racial and Sexual Assemblages of Transnational Religion from Columbia University Press, 2015. When I'm finished speaking, I'll pass a copy around so that you can take a look if you have not seen the book yet. Um, drawing on eight years of ethnographic research in Havana and the Matanzas, Cuba, and in New York City, Miami, Los Angeles, and the San Francisco Bay Area, this book traces the phenomenon of co-presence in the life of Santeria practitioners, mapping its emergence in transnational places and historical moments, and its ritual negotiation of race, imperialism, gender, sexuality, and religious travel. Santeria's spirits, deities, and practitioners allow digital technologies to be used in new ways, inciting unique encounters through video and other media. Doing away with trans traditional perceptions of Santeria as static, localized practice or part of some mythologized past, this book emphasizes the religion's dynamic circulations and calls for non-transcendental understandings of religious transnationalisms. When I pass the book around, you'll be, um, I commend you to look at the back cover. There are many approving statements here that <laughs> I think are, are well earned. I can't resist reading one of them. Belisa de Jesus' principled refusal of an analytic of transcendence, her spirited critique of conventional approaches toward mediation, her focus on the sensorium, and her mobilization of black feminist and queer theory give us a handle on problems that anthropologists of religion and religious studies scholars have yet to pay full attention to. And this book puts us forward on all of these issues. So let us welcome Aisha tonight for her presentation. Thank you so much, Frank, for that wonderful introduction. Just putting a timer for myself so I can make sure and stop talking. Um, that was really, uh, really wonderful. And I want to especially thank the Center for the Study of World Religions for having this book talk. Um, Amy Hollywood, the series editor at Columbia University Press, um, for believing in these concepts uh, that, I've, that I've put forth, as well as um, all of the wonderful support from everybody who's um, both in agreement and disagreement with some of the thoughts. I, I'm just going to sort of talk a little bit about kind of where this book comes to be, and then I'm going to read a selection. Um, really, this book is, um, a, a, in a lot of ways, a sort of religious and political genealogy that takes shape between the US and Cuba. 
um, in, in, during research with practitioners, during doctoral research where I was looking at Afro-Cuban religious practitioners in Cuba and the new relationships that were happening within sort of religious travel and tourism to Cuba, I came about upon a strange dynamic, an interesting dynamic that I had never seen before, and that was the recording of religious videos. Now, the recording of media is al al already something within Santiago that was, that was sort of prohibited. It was an issue. Practitioners didn't allow the recording of rituals. Um, uh, and this, m in many cases, had a lot to do with the ways in which um, the sort of quotas of secrecy that had been established from slavery as a form of security, sort of protection of the practices themselves, uh, saw or envisioned the uses of media as a sort of imperial technology, as something that would come in and sort of steal both in, in, in multiple ways, um, practitioners' power, well-being. And so to see uh, during the mid-1990s and late 1990s in Cuba this phenomenon of the recording of religious media, where people were, where travelers from the United States were coming in and taking religious videos um, was really sort of profoundly interesting to me and I wanted to think about what it meant and what this media was what this new media practice was doing um, so in order to do that one of the things that I did was sort of follow methodologically uh, a way to trace transnational religious practices that entailed oftentimes actually reading, uh, watching the videos themselves in Cuba. These were videos that were taken sometimes the night before of rituals that were done with the Cubans who uh, had been in the videos. We would sit around a room together. We would actually watch the media, watch people watching themselves on television. And then I followed the media back to the United States to specific places uh, in New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles. And I looked at the ways in which people were watching the media in the US. I was really looking at what they were doing, what their experiences were, how they used this media. And some of the things that came out of this moment really sort of challenged so really typical questions that had been asked thus far in social scientific approaches to religion. Um, in a sort of broad sense, one of the sort of main ways in which the anthropology of religion had understood media, right, had understood the relationship between religion and media, had been through logics of mediation, right? Um, logics of mediation where the sort of notion that there's a sort of distancing between self and other that happened within media uh, and also within religion became the sort of pervasive way in which to understand all religious technological moments. However, for me, when I watched people engaging in media, when I watched people getting possessed through television screens or feeling the electricity of the orishas or the spirits of the ancestors of the dead that accompanied them, there was a question that was not quite captured with the notion of mediation. So this book really comes in to think critically um, and it takes up a sort of Africana phenomenology, an, an approach to religious experience and practice that starts with the ideas that different forms of understanding, being, or different ontologies actually shift the ways in which people experience the world. What this forces us to do, though, in order to think about how media relationships might allow us to think differently about these broad questions, is actually pr not, uh, not presume the relationship between transnationalism or media, but explore it from a different ontology. Out of this, uh, one of the things that I saw was to really take seriously what people were saying in terms of the language of experiencing religious and whether it be divinities or spirits or ancestors. Um, 
the Orishas, which are commonly seen as uh, energies of nature that surround people in embodied ambient forms of energy that are tied to people through sort of spiritual electric cords, were discussed as presences that didn't just exist in a sort of uh, an otherworldly heaven experience, but were really part of people's embodied understandings of themselves and of their worlds. I use the term co-presences to talk about how media, how spirits, how practitioners, how travel, all become part of the ways in which practitioners going between Cuba and the United States are experiencing a transnational experience of religion that is shared within notions of blackened epistemologies or blackened ontologies. Um, I can talk a little bit more about sort of the theoretical components that go into that, but really what this, what this ethnography is doing is trying to trace, or what does it mean to ethnographically trace different forms of sensorial, uh, electrical, uh, sort of the broadened experiences of feeling diaspora that are often sort of left unstated, right? So electric santeria really comes out of the ways in which orishas, eguns, or ancestors, direct people's movements, right? Um, what, one of the problems that I, I came upon in looking at social scientific approaches or traditional social, social scientific approaches to notions of religion had to do with the ways in which there was sort of this underlying very simplistic notions of transcendence and transubstantiation that became almost sort of, um, you know, sort of metamorphized and, and, and flattened and then used as the models that we think through all kinds of different theories. Um, for instance, global and local, right, were, were thought of in terms of models of globalization, right? So the, the global being the sort of otherworldly heaven and the local being sort of the here or the earth, right? Um, and, and this, and this, in, in this this notion of transubstantiation, this notion of transcendence that was embedded in social scientific approaches was also pervasive in the notion of mediation. So what the book takes up is a question that comes out of African diaspora practices and scholarship that asks, what would happen if we shift the ways in which we think about the ontologies from an Abrahamic perspective to different practices that have sort of spiritism or another basis. What does that do to the ways in which transcendence, trans, uh, transnationalism, globalization is experienced? Um, so what, one of the things I do want to say is um, that this research really uh, in many ways is also a is a commitment that I have personally to thinking critically um, about doing ethnographic research that pushes the boundaries of scholarship in, 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 in ways that we can trace normativities, right? So as someone who's sort of committed to feminist projects of, uh, of, of thinking critically about power, of uh, different forms of race, gender, and sexuality, um, what, I, what I'm following is a way, the ways in which to think about African diasporas as both multiple as well as situated within broader technologies or broader, broader social formations. Uh, in order to do that, it, it, one of the things that for me became really important was to not just simply see the ways in which people were moving and traveling as always a, a sort of utopian space, always a comfortable space, always a happy space, but to also look at the ways in which power comes up through these other technologies, through these other modalities of travel, of tourism, right? Um, and so in doing so, what I'm hoping to capture in this is both 
these kind of ambient spaces of power that often are not recognized, and also the kind of everyday tangibilities of empire that are expressed. So one of the chapters that I have is called The Scent of Empire. And really what it does is it looks at the ways in which the distinction between Cuban and foreigner are built into how Havana Santeria, it, it, it makes nationalist distinctions between religious practitioners. And I look at all of the ways in which race and nationalism, gender, sexuality, come together to create new lines of power within these touristic circuits. Now, what's really important for me, however, in this mo moment is to not dismiss these practices and, and take them sort of as, um, as sort of outside of the very logic within which they operate. Um, in, in, therefore, in doing so, I want to I want us to th sort of think critically about holding all of these elements in tension with each other simultaneously. There's sort of evanescence. And I'm going to read a selection to explain to you what I mean. Um, and then the last thing I would like to say about why this book, it, why the journey for this book became really important was also about crafting ethnography. Crafting, for me, the, 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 the point of, um, of ethnographic writing is both theoretical as well as pleasurable. I wanted to make the experience of Santeria for people who were unfamiliar with it something that they could both, both sort of be immersed within as well as something that respected the historical codas of secrecy that the religion itself holds as valuable markers for entering their spaces. So one of the things that's missing from this book are sort of blatant analysis of rituals, right? I didn't do the sort of what people would normally think of as an analysis of Santeria rituals. And I think that that's been done. What I did do, though, is I showed people through the experience of the book how an ontology of co-presences, how walking through the world with multiple ontologies of beings that are tied to people in these ambient forms actually shifts their experience of transnational religious practices. So I'm going to read a selection that highlights this experience of co-presences. This is from the Electric Orisha, Chapter 1. All right, it's titled Sensing Spiritual Currents. Matanzas Cuba, sweat soaked my jeans and the hot sun beat down on the pavement, leaving no reprieve in the short shadows left by the closely packed buildings on the main street as I walked up the slope towards Miss Lydie's house. It was October 2005. I had met Miss Lydie's, an attractive young Cuban woman, a week earlier. I'm finishing my year of initiation, she told me, and then she invited me to her house for the party. Her boyfriend, Umberto, from Spain, was going to be coming in. So this is the first time her boyfriend, who had financed her priesthood initiation, was going to see her. And so it was a very sort of big moment for her. She lived in a large colonial building adjacent to the city's small downtown. When I entered the front door, I was immediately drawn to a large, beautiful throne erected in the corner of the spacious living room. The, the orisha, or the deities, sat in their china pots, elaborately dressed in a large adorned handkerchief. The rotating mechanical fan wafted the scents of pasta salad, cake, sweet pastries, and flowers that lined the front of the altar. Thus far, it was a typical religious birthday party. So in Santeria, you're considered to be reborn into an African diaspora body. And so your initiation day is a birthday, which, uh, and which you celebrate every year as if it were a birthday which it is. Uh, 
Unlike any other party I had attended in Cuba, however, a Sony television had been set up with a brand new shiny DVD player. The plastic manufacturer's stickers were still on, so this was especially interesting. And at that time, DVD players were illegal in Cuba, so the display of a DVD player in the living room with a party was especially unique. Miss Lydis pressed play, and large speakers blasted bata drums and singing. A recording of her drum presentation made a year earlier began to play on screen. An excerpt from my field notes describes the religious video moment. Miss Lydis danced slowly in the DVD, head facing downward, dressed all in white, covered in a long shawl and heavy beaded necklaces. Umberto, her, her boyfriend, sat in front watching the ceremony for the first time. On screen, a thin man grabbed his head. His body trembled and his leg jerked. You could see that he only had partial control of his body. He was about to get possessed. It became more intense and he tried to leave, but some priests blocked him. The singer shook the bell in his ear. He began spinning and flapping his arms as he was mounted. Then a high-pitched, Awkward laughter came out of his baritone voice. As we watched the television possession, a woman standing next to us in the living room began to shake. Off screen, Ochun possessed the woman and saluted the throne. Ochun, on screen, danced in the woman's body. Then Ochun took Miss Lydis and her Spanish boyfriend into a back room to consult them, and the DVD continued to play. People commented on the double possessions, how the Orisha, or Chun, was called down through the screen. While reconsidering this ethnographic experience, I was struck by a descriptive anxiety. It was difficult to elucidate what had occurred that day. Rather than being an anthropologist who simply participated in the peddling of home movies or indulging in the narcissistic reproduction of the strange, it was important for me to give serious attention to the ways in which co-presences operated in Santeria currents. So co-presences are these ambient beings, are these energies of nature and ancestors, are considered to be tied to a person through corrientes espirituales, or electrical spiritual currents. And it's literally seen as a, an electrical umbilical cord that attaches all of these energies with two people's bodies who are simultaneously sort of walking through the world with these energies and spirits. Now, Afro-Cuban religious boundary work draws on these spirit materialities. And as we see from these Lydis parties, these electrical fields are considered to change the surrounding space. And they're measured by the power felt by practitioners in this room or through the screen. Although videos have been historically prohibited, one of the things that I want to show with Electric Santeria is that these new relationships of power, these new transnational economies, also produce new relationships with media and spirits, new relationships with divinities. The challenge to think about what does it mean to describe a, a spiritual experience by people without rendering that experience somehow dismissive or an, a, a moment of representation was what I had to deal with in the, my sort of quandary around issues with mediation. Finally, what this, spirit the, what this book is really trying to do is create a sort of non-exoticized account 
that takes seriously Santeria's own understanding of spirit presence as the place to start from divergent notions of presence. And I think what it does for anthropology of religion, as well as religious studies more broadly, is it shows how we can both be attentive to the sort of critical relationships of power, as well as alternative forms of ontology at the same time. Thank you. Thank you, Aisha. So um, we now have three discussants, and I'll introduce them um, severally as they come up. The first needs no introduction. Uh, Professor Mark Jordan is the Andrew W. Mellon Professor of Christian Thought here at Harvard University. He is a wide-ranging scholar of Christian theology, European philosophy, and gender studies. He currently teaches courses on the Western traditions of Christian theology, the relations of religion to art and literature, and the prospects for sexual ethics. Just to try to group his many publications in three categories, I can say first that for the past two decades, uh, he has written extensively in the field of sexual ethics, producing books that are widely regarded to have opened up new, important new conversations, especially with regard to homosexuality and ethical reflection on marriage. This includes books such as 2001, The Ethics of Sex, 2002, Telling Truths in Church, 2005, Blessing Same-Sex Unions, and 2011, Re Recruiting Young Love, How Christians Talk About Homosexuality. In the meantime, Mark has also continued to explore topics at the boundary of philosophy and Christian theology. And in this category, a book that we celebrated in this room last year, uh, Convulsing Bodies, Religion and Resistance in Foucault. And he is forever a dauntless, undaunted Aquinas scholar. Uh, we all know his earlier work on Aquinas, his 2005 book of essays, Rewritten Theology, Aquinas After His Readers. But we look forward to his new book that's coming out soon from Fordham University Press, Teaching Bodies, Traditions of Moral Formation in Thomas Aquinas. And perhaps next year we'll discuss that book here. But tonight we'll hear Mark on Aisha's book. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. I always ask Frank to make the introduction as brief as possible. I did. I did. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and I began to lose my voice this afternoon while lecturing on Calvin. You may regard that as, as divine judgment or somatic resistance. Um, yeah, yeah. Thanks to Aisha for inviting me onto this panel and to Frank, as ever, for hosting these marvelous events. And to my fellow panelists, whom I very much look forward to hearing. So let me serve as the Mardi Gras warm-up band tonight by playing some familiar rhythms. I hope to work my way towards three questions that I share with Aisha and about which she has also taught me. Let me approach them with a deliberately simple narrative about body-bound stigma. The case concerns the languages, the stories, the props or costumes, and the practices of people who have been stigmatized under a single label that authorizes harsh sanctions, criminal, economic, social sanctions. As the people coalesce but also divide in resistance to that leveling stigma, 
They cultivate religious strategies of survival. These religions are themselves stigmatized. They are judged heresies or perversions by the dominant religious authorities. They are ridiculed as primitive or preposterous. Their rites are rejected as unclean when not disgusting. External judgments are answered by internal divisions. Even though these religions of the stigmatized contain elements that might subvert dominant hierarchies, they end up somehow replicating them. For example, while these religions often perform gender otherwise, they seem to replicate patriarchy and misogyny. While these religions claim solidarity with the racially oppressed, they are shot through with racial discriminations of their own. And while these religions undertake radical critiques of, of existing religious institutions, especially Christian churches, they recapitulate familiar church disputes over authentic lineage and orthodox interpretation. Such tensions are only intensified through diaspora and pilgrimage. Some members of the stigmatized groups flee the cities for rural areas and a purer practice of ancestral religions, while others carve out a neighborhood within the city as the proper home of the greatest rites. And all the while, there is a steady stream of visitors who come to the city or to the rural encampments for worship, for initiation, perhaps also for exotic touristic pleasures, before returning to their diverse homes and homelands, carrying back with them both true religion and all its disputes. This is a deliberately simplified narrative. Much more would need to be added. But let me notice one thing already. The story I have told you could apply equally to Aisha's study of Cuban Santeria and to queer religious experiments in and out of San Francisco from about 1955 to 1985 or even 2015. I hope to use this convergence of cases to articulate three shared questions while underscoring that I do so as an outsider. My site for study and for pilgrimage is not Matanzas, but the San Francisco neighborhoods of Soma, Valencia, and Castro, which are also Aisha's neighborhoods. <laughs> and while I grew up a long time ago in the Mexican state of Jalisco, Aisha has shown me with new clarity the difference of a Caribbean context. Count me as a Yuma, then, a multiply suspect tourist. <laughs> a first convergence represented in my narration has to do with disputes over authenticity and orthodoxy. In the archives of the GLBT Historical Society in San Francisco, there are several pieces of correspondence by and about Michael Itkin, to use one of his names. Itkin was an extravagant and maddening figure, not untypical of the unassimilated queer politics of the 1960s and 1970s. He made a habit of crashing Roman Catholic liturgies by dressing up as an archbishop and striding in with an appropriate haughtiness. No one stopped him. <laughs> Other times he wore rather less. According to one report, he once stripped off to dance on a conference table 
as protest against the stodginess of a national meeting of homophile organizations. In this archived correspondence, Itkin is involved in a series of disputes over religious standing and jurisdiction. On the Feast of Pentecost 1971, some months after the table dancing incident, Itkin writes an open letter to the gay clergy serving the San Francisco community. It's a proposal to hold a meeting of reconciliation to heal recent quarrels. Itkin signs the letter as a bishop of the Syro-Chaldean Evangelical Catholic Communion. A few weeks earlier, he was writing as Bishop Abbot of the Hermitage of St. Joseph of Arimathea on the letterhead of the Evangelical Catholic Community of the Love of Christ. Uh, the address of which was on 22nd Street, by the way. <clears throat> In another folder of the archives, there is a letter from the end of the 1970s in which an old-time leader of sexually dissident Christian groups, George Hyde, tries to <coughs> debunk the legitimacy of any and all of Itkin's ordinations by attacking the persons claimed as lineage for them. Hyde objects that Itkin's apostolic succession passed through at least one former Unitarian, a liberal Christian, a free Protestant minister who was a modernist and heterodox in most of his theology. Reading these letters, indistinguishable in tone from official condemnations, I feel the impulse to blurt out, boys, boys, please, you're homosexuals according to the real experts in orthodoxy and apostolic succession, you are already consigned to a smoky eternity in hell. I feel a similar impulse, if not quite so personal, when I read Aisha's descriptions of the indictments and insults lobbed back and forth, most of them echoes not only of standard social prejudice, but of colonial respectability what Marcella Althaus-Reed used to describe as the colonizer's decency. When the self-proclaimed International Council for Ifa Religions pronounces that it is an abomination for a female to own, keep, or view Orisa Odu, I think, <gasps> I've, I've heard this rhetoric somewhere before, and surely the members of the council have also heard it in colonial and contemporary promulgations of the Anglican version of Leviticus on sex gender deviations. We have various explanations ready to hand for why members of stigmatized minorities mimic so fastidiously the rhetoric used against them. We speak, for example, of internalized oppression or colonial mimesis. Yes to all of that. But I also detect both in San Francisco and in Aisha's accounts of Cuba, a performed reversal of shame, a creative self-fashioning. This, I take it, is the power of religious resistance. I usually call it camp, not in Susan Sontag's sense so much as in Eve Sedgwick's. Writing on Kavafi and Queer Little Gods, Sedgwick urges us to think of camp, I quote, not in terms of parody or even wit, but more 
of an eye for its visceral operatic power, the startling outcrops of overinvested erudition, the prodigal production of alternative histories, the overattachment to fragmentary, marginal, waste, lost, or leftover cultural products, the richness of affective variety, and the irrepressible, cathartic fascination with ventriloquist forms of relation. Ventriloquist forms of relation. Once again, this is a description that seems to apply both to some queer religious practices and to some of Santeria, as Aisha evokes it. Let me insist that some of the practices are astonishingly familiar. Male initiates overtaken by electrifying female co-presences, I have seen that too, only not in the liturgy of Santeria. Here then is the first question. With so much queer theory on the table in this book, I was struck by the absence of the categories of camp and drag as tools for thinking the co-presences because I think that's what those categories are exactly meant to do. Was this deliberate? If so, why? Here more briefly, a second point of convergence, what I would call the combination of sacred geography and sacred history. Many of Aisha's conversation partners have a strong sense that some places are holier than others. Holier means more authentic, truer, more powerful. If some santeros travel to Cuba because it is cheaper to be initiated there, they also claim that Havana or Matanzas offers more authentic rites. Aisha offers other examples of sacred geography, the root metaphor of the camino or path, the ritual differentiation of Havana against Matanzas and both against bosque or monte, more importantly, Aisha describes varied appeals to a place of origin, to Africa, figured not only as original home of the invisible powers, but as the land of long ago freedom. The appeals to it vary from programs for retrieving Af African practice to the weakest claims of African inspiration. Even in their weakest forms, though, the claims point back to an origin, something like paradise. You may or may not be surprised to hear that queer religious groups in San Francisco also appeal to myths of origin in a pristine time. We usually treat these myths as jokes, but then we are usually embarrassed by the frequent recourse to myth and magic in radical American movements of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. I mean, a respectable political movement doesn't try to levitate buildings whether the Pentagon or the local police precinct. A respectable political movement doesn't invoke the original goddess for protection or revenge. And a respectable political movement doesn't claim that San Francisco was an outpost of Atlantis or the goddess's favorite mountain or the landing place for queer aliens who bring free love and universal peace. It is astonishing to remember how fully Marxist rhetoric of revolutionary solidarity existed right alongside this other rhetoric of sacred places and times. A double language one also notices in Cuba. 
Indeed, a clever rhetorical analyst ought to be able to find a dialectical link between Marxist vernaculars and the idioms of enchanted place-time body. But here's a corresponding point of divergence between this sample of queer religions and Aisha's subjects, a divergence and so a second question. The founders of the lineage of Cuban Santeria that Aisha features, in fact, either came from Africa or descended from those who did. Their practices are improvisations on recognizably African rituals or reinventions of them. But the religious practitioners I'm recalling in San Francisco mainly came from Iowa or New York or Fresno. Their practices were either variations on their birth religions, chiefly Judaism and Christianity, or else inventions rather loosely inspired by scraps of scattered reading. Ought the historicity of the origin matter to the study of sacred geography or chronology? Or how exactly does it matter? Should I read Santeria differently if I knew that it had been invented more or less out of whole cloth in the 1830s or the 1930s just outside Matanzas? Would I analyze the religious movements in San Francisco differently if I believed that Twin Peaks really was the goddess's favorite spot? Here's the third point of convergence, the last I'll mention most briefly. Concerns what I'll call the balance of ecstasy and technology. Aisha is rightly careful in her accounts of ritual to respect the prohibitions on what outsiders can see, hear, and smell of the invocations of the co-presences. I don't want to press her now to violate that respect. But I do want to ask about the experienced balance between the rights inside and the stigmas outside. Reading Aisha's wonderful interviews, I was struck by how many of them concerned what I might think of as daily magic, as the effort to invoke the co-presences for navigating or controlling daily problems. This made me reflect on the relative absence of such daily implications in many forms of queer religion, including some of the most bodily. The ecstatic experience of the dance floor, the music festival, the bathhouse, the fairy circle, these often serve to interrupt the ordinary. They help survival by allowing escape for a time into another reality. The break wasn't clean, of course, nor was it offered equally by all religions of the sexually stigmatized. With their emphasis on daily spells, for example, some goddess communities are an obvious counterexample. There were also claims that separate or hidden practices could actually change the course of daily life in a revolution or eschaton. So the distinction of deep ritual and daily technology is hardly absolute. But often queer ritual space was an antidote to daily life by negation or reversal. Is that true of Santeria? Or what is the balance in Santeria of ecstasy and technology. And how, I wonder, is that balance related to the way different stigmas catalyze different religious practices? 
I mean to the ways in which ritual communities formed chiefly by shared sexual stigma differ from those formed in response to racial stigma, especially to what Aisha names as blackening. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> Our second respondent tonight is Deborah Pacini Hernandez, who is uh, Emeritus Professor of Anthropology and American Studies at Tufts University. So we're very grateful to you for coming over to be with us tonight here at the center. Um, Professor Hernandez's work includes comparative US Latino studies, Latino community studies, ethnic and racial identity, in Caribbean and U.S. Latino popular music and culture, and the impact of the globalization on Latin American and Latino popular music. I will now botch several names here. She is the author of Oye Como Va, Hybridity and Identity in Latino Popular Music, 2010, and Bachata, A Social History of a Dominican Popular Music, 1995. She is also the co-editor of a number of books, including Reggaeton, um, 2009, and also Rockin' Las Americas, the global politics of rock in Latino America. So we welcome you tonight to be our respondent. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I've been uh, sick for the last five days, a little under the weather here, so um, I'm going to make uh, my comments brief. Uh, mostly I have questions. Um, so I wanted to make them uh, think brief, so that, uh, and I want to cede my time to Aisha so that uh, she can, you know, respond to these and the other questions and more that are yet to come. So, um, so I'm coming at this book um, from the perspective of an anthropologist whose work has revolved around the relationships between Latino American, and when I say Latino American, I don't mean just Latino. I put the Latin slash O American, um, so that it encompasses both, you know, Latin America and U.S. Latino. So anyway, so while religion is not my bailiwick at all, uh, some of the topics addressed in this book I've been interested in for a long time, although in other contexts uh, outside of religion. Now, additionally, I conducted some research on popular music in Cuba throughout the 90s, uh, the decade in which Cuba moved from being largely closed to tourism to the first stages of opening up to tourism. So in those trips, I either went with a researcher's visa uh, or conferences, or sometimes without a visa through a third country. So I was there as an academic tourist, and, and as such, I was able to observe some of the transformations in daily Cuban life that Aisha talks about in her book, including the Cuban government's efforts to introduce Afro-Cuban music and culture associated with Santeria to academic tourists such as myself. So for example, in a uh, conference on, uh, that was uh, popular music scholars, they took us to Matanzas and, you know, and so there were performances and so on. So um, it was uh, interesting, you know, to read, you know, that uh, trajectory that you described so well in your book. So anyway, in the time allotted to me, I'd like to raise five questions on the theme of globalization, migration, race, language, and methodology that came up as I read through the book through the lens of my work of Lat in Latino American studies and as an anthropologist, and then cede my time. So 
But first I wanted to make uh, one comment outside of those questions um, about the spiritual world of Santeria, which is the topic I'm least prepared to professionally talk about. Um, now, just recently, since my retirement, um, I've been reading about uh, secular Buddhist ways of thinking about the human experience, much of which focuses on becoming aware and understanding better the nature of the self and how self-awareness can and should shape our relationships with other living beings. Um, in contrast to the highly personal nature of these concerns, I was struck how busy the world of Santeria is, populated with so many different types of entities with diverse attributes and statuses, the Orishas, the ancestors, uh, and the living who are in constant dialogue and negotiation with each other. So as an anthropologist, the sociability of it all caught my attention. The constant interactions and exchanges and dialogues between what Aisha calls co-presences are not only common, but necessary for a fulfilling life. Um, it also struck me that while other religions may also be transnational in terms of how people and ideas move between different locations, uh, believers can go on pilgrimages, retreats, and so on, and teachers can travel around the globe to impart knowledge to others. Santeria seems to be different in that mobility is not just for the living, but rather the gods and the spirits themselves are also perceived as mobile and as travelers. So this book has provided me with a truly insightful and fascinating glimpse into a very different kind of spiritual world, and I thank you for it. It's really good. Uh, it's, it has so many different dimensions to it. So anyway, now to my questions. Um, my first question is related to the themes of globalization and transnationalism. Now, in many ways, the kind of power asymmetries that you describe in transnational Santeria reproduce or reflect asymmetries in other forms of hemispheric relations in which the U.S., um, either by hard political, economic, and military power or soft cultural power, has exercised an inordinate influence on Latin America, amply supporting the charges of imperialism leveled at the U.S. government and businesses with interests in Latin America. In contrast to that lopsided power dynamic, it's interesting to read that in Santeria, the central nodes of religious authority and power are reversed, residing in Cuba, and to a uh, lesser extent in Nigeria, with Santeria and the U.S. being in the subordinate position. However, this book also suggests to me that the influence of Santeria practitioners from the U.S. could be on the rise because of their access to goods and media technology needed and or desired by Cuban santeros. This sort of economic influence will likely grow as relations with Cuba are normalized with more religious travelers visiting the island and more Cubans circulating between the, US, the Cuba and the US, either as migrants or just going back and forth as they're able to do so. Um, so I'd like to make a comparison to what I've observed um, of the circulation of popular music between the US and Latin America to clarify this question. Musical genres such as Cuban son, uh, Colombian cumbia, Dominican merengue and bachata that originated in the Spanish Caribbean basin were initially valued for their authenticity, which was imagined as grounded in an organic connection to the region or nation of origin. However, as these musics began to be recorded and distributed by the economically more powerful U.S. recording industry, Record companies in the homelands lacked the resources to compete. So many musicians and their styles ended up migrating to the US where economic opportunities were perceived as greater. Migration of the consumers of these styles to the US 
in past decades has further tipped the balance of economic power towards the U.S. The vibrant local music scenes that once nourished these styles didn't disappear, but languished in relative obscurity and often ended up perceived as relics of the past in their original homelands. Uh, we can observe this in what happened to Cuban Son, in which, after the embargo was imposed in the 1960s, was profitably marketed as salsa in the U.S., while in the Cuba, Son musicians, deprived of opportunities to participate in the international music arena, were eventually relegated to a folkloric past, only to be rediscovered by the likes of Vim Vendors and his Buena Vista <coughs> Social Club project. The same thing has happened to varying degrees to Dominican merengue bachata as well as to Colombian cumbia, which now circulate more widely and profitably in the U.S. than in their homelands. So my question is, do you think there might be a tipping point where the balance of spiritual power and authority shifts away from Cuba and Cuban practitioners to U.S.-based practitioners, whether Cuban or not, because of similar economic and technological imbalances? Or is there something about religion, or this particular religion, that suggests that the balance of power and authority can remain grounded in Cuba over time, and especially in a post-embargo era? And sort of just as another slightly related, I'll just throw it out there. And how might Santeria in Nigeria fare with the unfolding Santeria diaspora? Nigerian Santeria also has claims on authenticity, and like Cuba, lacks uh, a lot of economic power, but it lacks the close connections to the economic resources of U.S. practitioners that Cuban santeros can take advantage of. And I'm just wondering, you know, how that might shift things around a little. Okay, so my second question is on migration. Um, your book focuses most closely on flows between Cuba and the U.S., but can you say a little bit more about Santeria and other Latin American countries where there has not been, at least to my knowledge, as much Cuban migration as to the U.S. In the case of Venezuela, um, from which the individual you refer to as La Venezolana hailed, um, I know that there have been close economic and political connections between the two countries in the Chavez-Maduro era, but do cultural exchanges related to Santeria predate these political and economic connections, or are they associated even if indirectly. And then in the case of other Latin American countries, such as Mexico, which you also mentioned quite a few times in your book, are these correct connections direct resulting from Cuban migration to Mexico? Or have these connections originated in the US among Mexicans who've come into contact with Santeria there rather than in Mexico, or perhaps both? Um, my third question um, is about race. Um, your book Discover, discusses how the experience of slavery, colonialism, and racism and, e and inequality are expressed in Santeria practices, but also emphasizes the importance of African lineages and linkages. But you also mention quite a few white and light-skinned priests and practitioners, some of whom are Cuban, some not. Afro-Cubanness is clearly esteemed in the world of Santeria practitioners, but to what extent, if at all, is blackness per se valued? And I once again bring up a musical example that may and may not be relevant to this. Um, in Brazil, when uh, black pride and Afrocentrism was in ascendance in the 1990s, some samba groups, known as blocos afros, began refusing to admit white or lighter-skinned musicians. Where, why, where, and how they drew racial boundaries in a population with so much mixed, racial mixture made this 
uh, practice very controversial. In Cuba, has blackness per se, as opposed to Afro-Cubanness, been a factor in granting or limiting participation in, uh, or authority and or authority in Santeria? Um, my fourth question um, is about language and the imagery of electrical flows. And I was struck by the concepts and the language of electricity and energetic flows that you employ. Do Santeria practitioners themselves use this language routinely to express ideas about life forces, whether in rituals themselves or when talking about it outside of ritual context? And you suggest that they do. Um, so if so, given that Santeria and its African antecedents predate the invention of electricity, is the language of electrical currents and energetic flows an adaptation of earlier concepts of flows in the natural world, such as flows of water, air, blood, or did the language of electric currents emerge after human-generated electricity became part of people's daily lives? I was just curious about this. It's not, you know. So, and then finally, my last question um, is on fieldwork methodology. Um, I was really interested in your candid discussion of how your research was a mixture of personal and professional interests and experiences, which endows your book with such powerfully intimate and insightful understandings of Santeria. As an anthropologist um, with a fair amount of experience with the internal review boards, I'm wondering how, given this blended approach to the subject of Santeria, you dealt with your IRB. And I want to say... <laughs> that I fully support the motivation of IRBs to ensure ethical research practices so that researchers don't cause harm to their interlocutors or deceive them in any way. However, many of my colleagues in anthropology have found that IRB requirements to obtain written consent for each and every conversation, especially in sensitive situations, has made it increasingly difficult for them to engage in the sort of freely flowing conversations as well as formal interviews that generally emerge out of legally unencumbered relationships between both parties. So my question is, how did you handle the entanglements of dealing with issues of consent, especially in the context of your own personal as well as professional relationships with Santeria? If you use consent forms, how did you explain their purpose to Cubans, and how did they react to the formality of signing forms, especially since the, these could be easily misunderstood by Cubans unfamiliar with or suspicious of documents associated, no matter how, how obliquely, with the U.S. government? And if you did not use consent forms, what kind of arguments did you make to the IRB to grant <laughs> you the exceptions? So those are my five questions. Um, I did keep it short. I, you know. And uh, hope you don't. I don't expect you to get to all of them. I know there's a lot of questions, but there they are. Thank you very much. Quite interesting. And and we have one more uh, discussant who we're very grateful also to have with us tonight. Dr. Susanna Denuda Walters is professor of sociology and director of women's gender and sexuality studies program at Northeastern University. Uh, in 2004, uh, Professor Walters had founded the first PhD program in gender studies at Indiana University, where she was a professor of gender studies and held positions in sociology and communication and culture. And before that, she had been a professor of sociology and director of women's studies at Georgetown University. Her work in general centers on questions of gender, sexuality, family, and popular culture, 
and she's a frequent commentator on these issues for the media. Among her many publications, her 2001 book, All the Rage, The Story of Gay Visibility in America, examined the explosion of gay visibility in culture and politics over the preceding 15 years before 2001, and raised pressing questions concerning the politics of visibility around sexual identity. Her other works include Material Girls, Making Sense of Feminist Cultural Theory, Lives Together, Worlds Apart, Mothers and Daughters in Popular Culture, and her most recent book, The Tolerance Trap, How God, Genes, and Good Intentions Are Sabotaging Gay Equality, 2014. This book explores how notions of tolerance limit the possibilities for real liberation and deep social belonging. So we welcome Professor Walters. Thank you. Thank you. I should also say, because everywhere I go now, I have to plug it that I'm um, a year now, I guess, uh, the editor of the journal Signs, the feminist journal Signs. And we have some, we have some brochures here. <laughs> Funny that I happen to have them. Uh, we're doing a, um, uh, a project we call the Feminist Public Intellectuals Project which is really reimagining a journal as a public space for feminist scholarship. Uh, and it's all open access. And please, look. That's the most important thing I can say. Thank you so much for inviting me here. Um, uh, and, and thank you. Um, and it's so interesting listening to this. I, I am a seriously odd person uh, to comment on this um, since I am a devout atheist. Uh, who approaches religion with a combination of disinterest, distaste, and profound ignorance. So, you know, I don't know what to say to you. Um, although, um, <laughs> although, although I was one of those people who tried to levitate the Pentagon. <laughs> And, and while we weren't successful, um, I didn't feel it was religious, so we need to talk about that. It was ecstatic, but a failed ecstasy um, at the moment. Um, but also, strangely, I have um, once been to Cuba um, in, I think, maybe 1983. It was right after the Mariel boat lift, I believe. And I did my requisite uh, Santeria tourism there along with the rest of the young lefties in my group. It was sort of, you know, you go to the factories and you go see the Santeria, and mostly I just split off from the group and went to clubs. Um, so my Cuba is in a haze of rum, really. That's all I remember. Um, so I'm going to be very, very brief here because I think we want to be able to have as much of a dialogue as we can. And mostly my question, since I am unbelievably ignorant on, and even, even you know, I know a little of my own sort of vague um, uh, left-wing Jewish history kind of stuff, but other than that, I'm, you know, I can run a Passover Seder, but that's about it. Um, so my questions will be focused on issues of sexuality and gender, obviously. First is a more general comment I have to you as a feminist scholar as to the structure of the book. I have to say I was surprised and a bit perturbed that the issues of sexuality and gender are kind of cordoned off in two chapters and frankly seemed to me more of a minor note in the book than I had anticipated. In so many ways there seems to me to be a kind of war here in this book between a depiction of, of a sort of lush romanticism 
of the early chapters in the descriptions of the religious practices, and the potentially more critical work being offered up when examining the ways in which homophobia and sexist and gendered nationalism iterate throughout these religious beliefs and practices. So part of my question, I guess, is how, one of my sort of key questions is how do you analytically reckon with these competing inclinations? How do you hold them together? For me, I guess, too much of that critical acumen is kept at bay or glossed in phrases, and I will quote you here for a minute, that for me beg for more substantive adjudication. So you say this, um, particularly when talking about um, the question of smell and the politics of smell and how they are related to sexuality. Like smells, you say, sexualities are difficult to contain. They are like good and bad odors that resist capturing vague, intangible clouds of smoke, heteronormative fumes. End of quote. Now, I'm not really sure what you're saying here, but heteronormativity, as far as I understand it, is hardly intangible and has real effects, not the least of them, the imprisonment of gays in Castro's Cuba. So I wonder then if your commitment to transmit the pleasures and passages of a particular set of transnational religious practices forces you, and these are sort of meta questions I know, forces you in some ways to bracket the critical voice, or to put it another way, that the critical voice becomes itself descriptive. The homophobia, the misogyny, the patriarchal nationalism, the disgust with women's bodies, all of it becomes a sidebar or just another story. So I guess what I'm saying here is I wondered, after finishing this book, what you actually made of the sexual, racial, and gender politics of Santeria. To assert that they are wafting and complex and contradictory, well, yes, we say that about most things. I mean, except Trump, who is just horrible, you know? Um, but when we talk about sexuality, when we talk about the contradictions of gender and sexuality, we're always talking about these complexities. But perhaps you could help me understand um, your argument a bit more here. Another example where I got a bit confused was your use of the phrase imperial feminism. You seem to use it to talk in two ways, both about the rhetoric invoked in patriarchal nationalism to feminize Western intrusion and modernization, which is a tactic we've seen all over the world, of course. It's a very uh, normative trope. But you also seem, at the same time, to talk about it as a real thing, right? So I'm not quite sure the, the uses you're making of it. So I fail to see, I guess, how some imperial feminism has somehow had a substantive impact on Cuban social and religious life. I just need some more explanation there about what, what are the different ways in which you're using it. Because the way in which, of course, the sort of, you know, the, the specter of an imperial feminism is used to sort of reassert a kind of uh, patriarchal nationalism, we've seen that all over. But there seems to be another way, and maybe I'm wrong here, that it seems to be another way you're using it as if there is this, this real imperial feminism that they really do have to fight against in some way. I wonder also if you could talk a bit more about the differences, and this really interested me, I thought it was a wonderful part of the book, and I wanted to see more of it, about the differences you hint at 
between a gender egalitarianism that actually bolsters a kind of nationalist authenticity, right? a gendered egalitarianism that's not about feminism at all, of course, that actually bolsters a kind of patriarchal nationalist sense of authenticity, and a feminism that remains thoroughly demonized and other. And of course, queerness here too as the sign of imperialist perversion and modernity. So how do these two things play out? And particularly, I was interested in how they might play out through the question of mediation and the media in particular. The relationship then between um, this sort of uh, invoking of an authentic gender, you know, we're the real, and this is in the Ianifa debates, you know, here's the real, here's the real, uh, you know, genuine stuff. Um, and we're more gender egalitarian, but no, no, we're not feminist. Of course, we're not feminist. And so everybody's saying they're not feminist, right? I mean, that seems to be everyone saying they're not feminist. Um, and I guess the other thing I, uh, I'm interested in is the relationship between the everyone saying they're not feminist and the sort of um, uh, uh, sort of uh, move of situating queerness. Um, and again, something that's done all over the place, situating queerness as the sign of perverse modernity. So how do those things tie together? How does the rejection of, of a kind of imperial feminism and the rejection of a kind of perverse queer modernity tie together? And again, what does that then say about these practices? I mean, I guess that's the part that I'm having trouble with is it's, it's sort of, and that's why I say for me there were sort of two books here there seemed to be a bracketing of that critique that I wanted to be unbracketed and say, well, where does this take you? You know, where does all this nasty, homophobic, patriarchal stuff, where, where, when you go down that rabbit hole, you know, what do you see at the end? Um, the other thing I wanted you to, to speak about, again, a bit more, and because I thought it was very interesting, but, but I would have liked to see it drawn out more, was this notion of contaminating femininities. And again, you know, it has huge resonances for all kinds of feminist theorizing and all kinds of queer theorizing as well. And I wonder if you could just comment how that might iterate across feminist theory and queer theory more broadly construed out of this particular context, for example. That's really what I got, you know? I uh, just, you know, because I don't know, it's like it was fascinating, you know? And, um, but, um, yeah, I'm a feminist theorist, so this is what I got for you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Susanna. So um, we have uh, our three discussions have been very economical in our time. We have about a half hour left, but Aisha has a task before her to respond wisely and selectively to the many wonderful comments that have said. So please come up. Well, thank you so much. These are wonderful and engaging questions. I have so many notes that I want to sort of address um, some of the main points. Let me just unpack this a bit. I actually want to start with the framework question, which I think ties to the methodology question. Um, so one of the things that is important to me in terms of it, the, the way the book is structured, right? I mean, it really, um, 
for me, race, gender, sexuality is implicit within every context, within every aspect, every chapter. Um, and in sometimes it comes to the forefront, and other times it's not explicitly so. Oftentimes it's not rendered in sort of um, the, the ways in which kind of westernized, westernized logics would necessarily see it as critique, but it is implicit. So for instance, um, the first three chapters are really thinking strategically about the relationship between sort of genealogy or societies based in race in relation to the notion of liberal diaspora. How do we think, following sort of Elizabeth Pavanelli's relationship between the things that don't obviously seem put together with race and sexuality, right? And those connections that are made through sort of transnational circuits of power that often get relegated to the not sexual or not gendered because they don't explicitly talk about sex or talk about gender. And for me, that is crucial to thinking about these modalities. And so for me, when I talk about heteronormative fumes, that's not to disavow the heteronormativity, that the hardened heteronormativity that's sort of woven in um, very explicit methods, and I, and, I, and I talk about that, but I think that that's been addressed, and there's been a lot of research that I cite um, in the book about the ways in which Castro, the Castro sort of, uh, you know, regime was, you know, extremely uh, harsh on, uh, on, on homosexual, not only religious practitioners, not only Afro-Cubans, but how this sort of hi longer history is there and has been focused on. What often is not talked about and what is often relegated to a sort of side conversation are the ways in which religious practices, particularly religions in the sort of vein of what Mark was talking about, these sort of marginalized, stigmatized, racialized, sexualized, and gendered practices that already come constituted in the project of slavery. So thinking about, so for instance, Spiller's work, which, um, which, which talks about the slave moment as, an, as, as a sort of key component, right? Franz Fanon talks about this as well, and I talk about this in the introduction, but it's this key p moment uh, where, the, where the sort of blackening project of, of, of imperialism, of slavery, creates a, a sexualization, a racialization that cannot be separated from what we come to understand as liberal diaspora. And what I mean by liberal diaspora is the ways in which there's a sort of a, a, a regime or a technology of liberal identity that is is this sort of westernized standard by which everything is judged. And with what often gets ha what often happens is feminism gets subsumed within liberal diaspora. So that's why, right? And and so that's why the the book is structured in a way to do two important things. And these two important things, I think, um, become particularly crucial when talking about Afro-Cuban religions. And I know I want to get into um, to your comments, Mark, so, I wanna, so I'll sort of move from there. But there's two important things that happen. And one, one of the most important things that happens with anthropology, but also scholarship of African diaspora religions more broadly, is either the religious practices themselves are seen without sort of their own internal spaces of power and, and, and new dynamics that form transnationally, or they're constructed as these locations of the past that don't allow for the, the sort of complexities of religious practices within themselves. Um, what I also didn't want to do is participate in the recriminalization, the re-demonizing, of these practices themselves, right? And so the location of ethnographer, and this goes to your um, sort of uh, question about methods and, and my positionality, the location of ethnographer is already within these practices situated as a whitened imperialist positionality. Right. So what do I do with the moment where I'm not trying to reify the quest for the mysterious black body? While at the same time, I want to pay attention to how practitioners themselves do 
construct that as a source of authenticity within these religious economies that bring people to sites like Matanzas or Havana for authentic blackness, right? And, 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 and global blackness, right? Um, and and that's, that's sort of related to but distinct from Afro-Cubanness, which has its own sort of national politics, right? Um, so these are the tensions that I'm working with, and I'm also working with them in ways that I'm trying to um, sort of move away from the traditional writing of ethnography that is uh, that 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 it, that it deploys criticism or critique um, as a as the sort of the, the blanket and celebratory model of engaging analytically, and and so drawing on sort of feminist uh, physicist Karen Barad's work, right? the kind of pushback, not just within new materialisms, but kind of feminist ontological work is like, what does it mean to think about ontology, not just uh, sort of the way it's located or examined, but write it and experiencing it in the research itself, in the way in which we describe the passages that we are writing. Um, and so, uh, so yes, it, there's, so, 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 the, the, so the experience of the, the, of the book is really about embedding people within alternative ontologies while paying attention to race, gender, and sexuality implicit within all. So for instance, in the, the first chapter, um, I'm talking about the ways in which religious travel and tourism are spawning economies that are highly sexualized and how the, divi the divinities, the orishas, the spirits, the co-presences are all interacting as sexualized, racialized, gendered beings that are constructed in the very moment of blackening projects, right? And what does that mean? It means we think about an um, Africana phenomenology, which tells us that we can't, one, universalize. We have to sort of take as a starting point that Western Im imperial phenomenology is not the, the point from, of departure. And then it sort of shifts that by looking at the ways in which the practitioners themselves are speaking about spirit. So like electricity comes in and you know the energies um, and you know, this is also very modernist, right? So these philosophies are coming out of French Cartesian um, and Enlightenment relationships with New Age spiritism practices and table turning, right? So it's not just simply wedded through African traditionalities, but kind of con co sort of con the conversations of the time um, that, tr that both trace African lineage, but also centralize Cubanness, right? Um, and those things get posited, I think, in rough, um, I think in, in, in sometimes rough and in sometimes soft manners. So I just want to, so as I want to say about that, um, so going back to uh, the kind of, the questions that um, you're asking about sort of power asymmetries between Cuban practitioners and US practitioners, I mean, it, it's really interesting because I think that you see both. You see, on the one hand, the sort of, uh, the, the kind of uh, investment in an authenticity by certain groups in Cuba who are mobilizing an Afro-Cubanness that's in direct opposition to Nigerian uh, establishment um, you know, of IFA, and they want to say, no, we have the real IFA. Uh, on the other hand, and, and that often serves the tourism of the Cuban state. And then you see white Cuban-American Santeria groups who are saying, well, actually, no, we, actually, we, we should be looked at as the primary sources of power because they have been invested with communism and all these other things that have sort of, sort of created a, um, a, a difference there that's not necessarily as truly religious, right? Um, so you have all these interesting contentions that happen um, that, I mean, I, it, it, whether or not there's the sort of the, I think because Santeria in particular uh, and African diaspora religions in particular are beholden to uh, the tracing of lineages in a way that is both uh, Afro-modernist as well as uh, Caribbean, um, it, would, it would seem 
odd if there would be a sort of sh complete shift to the U.S. in the same way that like Latin salsa has happened, right, with the son, which is an interesting um, uh, an example. Uh, and then in terms of IRB, honestly, the, tr the truth of the matter is I uh, started with um, with an open IRB where I didn't, with oral consent IRB. And um, my first interview was with this extremely, uh, you know, uh, homophobic man who was saying all of these sort of disturbing things. Um, and when I, and the first thing he asked me is, where's the paper that I need to sign? And and, it, and so it was really interesting because I was like, well, I don't have to have a paper, but if you would like to sign, here's the oral consent script. You can sign that. Um, and then it's after that, I actually just employed a written consent form because people were asking for it because they wanted it because Afro-Cuban practitioners are used to being studied by researchers. <laughs> it is not foreign to them at all. If I would have came in without an IRB form, they would have said, "What are you a real researcher? What university are you with? Right? So that was an interesting uh, sort of moment about sort of the relationships and the ways in which subjects know what they're, how, that they're being studied, right, um, on the one hand. Um, I know there, I want to open it up for other questions, but I want to sort of get to, um, I want to get to one other element that I think is important. Um, oh, I really want to talk about sort of the, uh, the questions that, you know, Mark, you raised that, um, you know, the sort of shared resonances with um, uh, one of the things that I was thinking, uh, well, as you were sort of describing the practices that I'm actually really familiar with because I'm so close in that area, is um, that, you know, th th there's also a queer santeria, right? <laughs> and there's, it's not, there's and, and so it's not santeria as opposed to sort of queer religion, right? But there's also a queer santeria that I try to capture. And I think that that uh, is a crucial moment of, uh, of the ways in which the politics of sexuality and race are kind of embedded in everyday religious practice, right? Um, and, and so within that, right, so within about thinking about sort of not only the not only sort of the um, sort of the very apparent modes of like sexuality in terms of people you know disavowing feminism or not claiming it in, in, in these broader things, but also um, the the ways in which um, race itself becomes an experience of of being of an ontology of oddness or strangeness in the world particularly when you become the site of tourism right particularly when people are coming to your house to practice religious tourism, um, there was a sense that people, how, that for, particularly with like the, the in, in Matanzas, that is seen as this sort of Jurassic Park where you can come in and and experience the authentic past, right? And this is happening via the state. This is happening via uh, slave trade museums, UNESCO. This is happening so these sort of global and and national politics, as well as to the practitioners themselves who are claiming this site of power. Um, I, for, so, so drawing on a transnational feminist analytic, for me, is important in, in, in and I'm gonna, and I, I want to tie this up quickly and then open it up, is important for several things. One, I'm not presuming to pass judgment, but I am looking at tracing analytics of power. And so what that means to me is there's ways in which some people disavow feminism and construct 
uh, the the sort of oppositional rationales behind uh, feminism as a modernist and imperial practice within Cuba strategically because they need to be seen as national good citizens, national subjects that can't be sort of the enemies of the state on the one hand. But then there's also a way in which foreigners who come to evolve Orisha or evolve religious practices in Cuba are also engaging in a form of feminism that can be identified as imperialist, right? And, 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 ha and, and not to try, and so the thing about Santeria that becomes extremely productive for me, and maybe the aha moment of this is really about how Santeria allows us to leave things irreconcilable. It doesn't try to make it tidy, it doesn't make it comfortable, and it doesn't always have to end in happiness, but it does give an ontology of struggle, of strength, of movement, of challenging particular, particular embedded regimes of knowledge in recognizing the race and imperialism, class, sexuality, politics of different practices, but also pushes back on any one sort of uh, te technology towards truth, right? Because it claims Judaism, it claims, uh, uh, you know, Islam, it claims Christianity, and it claims different forms of Africanity in its everyday experience, right? You'll see like little Buddhist statues with like a cross and on a white table ready to be prayed to the Orishas, right? And what does this mean? How do we deal with that? How do we think about those moments ethnographically um, and not judge people, but at the same time, in my opinion, beholden to a sort of feminist analytic as well as an anthropology of this space, what does that tell us about transnational religion? Um, I know that there's a lot more here that I could sort of get into, so I don't want to um, sort of speak forever, but I would love to open it up for other questions, comments, arguments, with, because I mean, and, and believe me, you don't have to buy my project here, but this is, I think, um, this is the, the part of the, I think, uh, you know, very, um, crucial element of why it's a disruptive text in, in a lot of ways. And I and thank you for, for acknowledging that it's disruptive. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank you. If I could ask our four participants to put their chairs up in front here now. And the, the last part of our conversation for about 15 minutes will simply be an open conversation You've heard from four uh, wonderful speakers and so many issues raised, and I know we have great expertise here in the audience. So I'll, I'll simply let our speakers recognize and handle it themselves. Um, and if I notice anyone left out, I'll try to also put your hand here. There. The floor is open. And you can address something to, the, to Aisha about her book, <laughs> yes. to the panel in general, or to somebody to follow up on what they said. Yes, please. Um, I have a question actually about the writing of the, of the book and kind of your methodology you just briefly touched on when you were talking about um, feminist mythologies. And I don't really have a specific question except that it, it did feel really like deliciously subversive in how it was done and I, I really appreciated you kind of taking Sangria on its own terms and like helping bring us into that and it, it changed a lot in my mind about how that can be done but also like the idea of like replicating that kind of methodology just seems like really important. Oh, okay. Thank so, like, you. <laughs> Thank so you. if you could talk a little bit more about like what that was like or like how you did go about right. constructing that and like Yeah, that's very helpful. I mean, so one of the things that I was trying to do was invoke a sort of a black queer feminist ontology throughout and so I used a lot of strategies through uh, Octavia Butler. 
Uh, she was my inspiration throughout the whole text in terms of just thinking about, you know, Afrofuturism, modernity, sexuality, queer theory, and how to make it in, in a way that's both sort of relatable and understandable, but also a pleasurable read. Um, because I am invested in writing in a pleasurable manner. Um, I know that's not always the case in terms of like some of the sort of the hard, harder theory maybe wasn't so pleasurable, but <laughs> I did try to make it pleasurable. <laughs> Well, I would love for you to talk a little bit about um, a question or issue that was raised by one of the commentators, yeah. and that is your reconciliation of whether or not media is a tool of Western imperialism. Oh, right. And how you yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would say as like just unidimensionally, as a, yeah, unidimensionally, I wouldn't say nece not necessarily, but there's arguments for and against it, right? And so mm -hmm. it was for interesting for me. It was like laying out, uh, I think. That's why mediation, right, so theories of mediation become helpful, and the question was, is uh, media always a sort of tool of Western imperialism for religious practice, practices, right? Um, so theories of mediation try to get that, try to get to the crux of that issue and argue that, like, you know, it's not uh, how media is, is, is sort of... Um, necessarily uh, constructed as oppositional or deteriorating like it doesn't media doesn't have to be deteriorating to religious experience but it actually can be a sort of a central factor and theories of mediation I think helpfully go back to the ways in which everything is sort of purportedly mediated right even the idea of the Christ on the, the sort of visual object of Christ on the cross is itself a form of media right as a form of sort of self-distancing and a practice of, of recognizing the divine um, as here on earth, right? So there's, so there's the ways in which media, or the technologies that we think of as media are not sort of new or in any, by any means, but also, um, I think, but, but what was happening for me with the, with the notion of co-presence was I was just, immediation or that sort of distancing between self and other just didn't get to what was happening with these new videos and people getting possessed through the screen and, and feeling the experience of media through the screen. It just didn't capture, not because something was wrong with mediation, but it was because it didn't explain Santeria's experience. And I wanted to be true to what was happening for people there and the types of discourses that they were using and the way that they were experiencing these traveling bodies, right? Um, so I would say, no, it's not inherently uh, deteriorating, right? Um, but there are people that make the argument that it is, right? Um, I had a question about your use of co-presences because yeah. we spoke tonight about how you use it within Santeria but not how you talk about it within the field of anthropology. Right. And there's a portion at the end of your introduction where you do speak about this. Right. That the co-presences of other um, anthropologists right. are mm. still with us also. And you talk about Lydia right. Cabrera and your work specifically. Yeah. Um, can you say more about that and also maybe how that sure. links into the conversation about mediation not being... Enough. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's great. So, I mean, there's also, I mean, this kind of comes up, it's Derrida sort of touches upon, right, this kind of spectralization or the ways in which we're all haunted by, our, by the things that we read or the people <laughs> that we read. He sort of touches upon it, but I think co-presences give us a sort of a really different way of thinking about this experience. And so for me, one of the things that happened was um, the white Cuban ethnologist Lydia Cabrera, who was somebody who documented quite a bit, probably one of the most prolific writers on Santeria, who was a Cuban, who, a queer Cuban woman who was then exiled 
out of, uh, of the island and wrote from afar. So she had a black nanny, and she remembers her experiences through, these, through this relationship that she had with her black nanny, uh, her Santeria experiences. Um, so Lydia Cabrera uh, was, in, in, was in danger because she published some work that, uh, uh, on some of the um, abacua, which are sort of an Afro, um, a, a heteropatriarchal uh, Afro-Cuban sect that uh, where men restrict all access to women. So she published some information on Abacua and she had to flee Cuba. So one of the things that I encountered when I, when I kept going uh, to do interviews was that people would say to me, are you like Lydia Cabrera? Are you gonna be a white person who's coming in and stealing our secrets and publishing them for people? And, um, and interestingly enough, Lydia actually writes in her, in her ethnographies or uh, you know, she sort of gives anecdotes to the white ethnographers who come after her. And she literally says, you know, for those of you who want to collect the data the way it should be collected, you need to be beware because the, the black sorcerer it lies and won't tell you the truth, right? Um, and so one of the things that I, that I do with this moment is I want to think about the, the ways not only in, with, in which anthropology creates black and subjects, but also the ways in which the sort of location of white ethnographer becomes crystallized in this moment within Santeria. Practitioners expect ethnographers to publish secrets and you know, sort of distribute these, this knowledge outside of their context, um, while at the same time, uh, practitioners also use the ethnography of Santeria in their everyday rituals, right? Mm -hmm. So they would bring out books of Lydia Cabrera during ritual <laughs> ceremonies and use them as sources to like name priests or, you know, to find, so it was like, it's kind of really interesting. And so I, I thought about how uh, these ontologies of co-presences, of sort of spirits and deities and, and ancestors and, and energies of nature constantly walking with you are actually um, in many ways relevant to the anthropology of Santeria. Not only with how practitioners use this media, this sort of work, right, this, this scholarship, but also the ways in which, you know, those of us who study these practices at some point or another have to be engaged with the religious practices themselves, right? And there's this sort of mutuality that happens. Um, and so linking it back to the writing of ethnography, what does it mean when we are in sort of citing and invoking uh, sort of different authors at different times, uh, whether it be through, uh, you know, just the sort of the theoretical unpacking of what they've written before us, or, um, or, or the analytics that we use to think about our subjects, um, the, the language of co-presence actually can help us see how we are sometimes possessed by the very research or the very scholarship that we read in the first place. So that was the, the point, it was roundabout, sorry. <laughs> Yes. I'm just curious, as an ethnographer, mm -hmm. when someone would say something to you that you thought was overtly homophobic right. or sexist, mm -hmm. yeah. how do you balance your role as, you kind of have the tension between wanting right. to report them how they are and also wanting to be analytical, so sure. how, how, do you, how do you handle that? Right. Um, right. And another kind of question I have with it is um, mm -hmm. when someone would tell you something um, that you thought was secret, potentially secret. Mm -hmm. Also, how did you, what kind of uh, criteria did you use to say, I will report this, but not this? Right. How did you kind of go about that? Sometimes I would just ask in the moment, was this something that you would want people to know about? And then they would say, uh, not really, no, or yeah, sure, that's fine. 
Um, other times I just use my judgment based off what I had seen people sort of access to and you know um, if there was something that was like in the moment that I knew and then a, a lot of times you know the people that I was working with they wanted to be included in the book I actually started off by not using interlocutors names because I wanted to keep the anonymity of my subjects and they were like no 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 we want first and last names and make sure they know it's me and not that person down the block who has a similar name it was really I had to, I, I had to like sort of deal with like people wanting to be included in the book because they saw it as like sort of a part of part of that work and then other times I would give them drafts um, and they would say to me oh, I didn't really like what you wrote there and I'm like I'm still gonna write it but I'll put that you didn't like it or I'll add a footnote in saying that you sort of disagree um, and so there's that element uh, the first question was um, how do you navigate uh, your kind of your kind of uh, roles and tension between oh, wanting to report yeah the homo yeah so the first interview I went on was with this really homophobic <coughs> Malau, uh, Ifa priest, Cuban Ifa priest in Havana who I use for both in the book, but I also use an article, uh, an article where he talks, he goes into sort of great depth about how American satiria is like faggotized, right? And he go and it's it was just really disturbing the the kind of ways it, and um, I I actually made a decision after that first interview that I wasn't going to go back for multiple very sort of various reasons. Um, he and I actually got into an argument, and he it was it was it was a sort of na a, a nasty experience, and also a mode of like what it means to be a, a, a young Latina researcher doing research with uh, you know sort of uh, in, in a in a space where people often perceive you or read you um, in, in 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 complicated ways, right? So I was often seen as like a prostitute uh, or a, a sort of a, Cu a, a Cuban who has access to goods from uh, from abroad right um, and, and and that was really that was really difficult to navigate right yeah. we have yeah. a number of hands up maybe we'll try to get like in three more questions and you're uh, first and then yes. second and third yeah sorry sure. uh, first you'll have to excuse my French <laughs> <laughs> So I'm from France, and um, I've been studying uh, Santeria Main in the 90s, yeah. actually, the beginning of the 90s, when it was not globalized. Um, it was very much self-centered. Very few tourists. I was one of them, so and, uh, I could see the difference with now. I mean, that's huge. I mean, 20 years, a lot of things going on. Nevertheless, uh, I went back last year for several weeks a field work, small field work, but a lot of things have not changed. What I, what I mean is that this globalization you're talking about, I'm absolutely sure it's uh, increasing. That's there's no doubt. But there are some part of Santeria community which is not involved in that. A part of, uh, there are margin, maybe on the margin right now, but you have a lot of people who do not have, uh, I mean, initiate from the US. And mm -hmm. even in, in Havana, even in right. the center of Havana, in El Cielo, where, where I was right. doing my research, my research. So it's not a total, a, a complete process of entering in, in globalization. And uh, so that's, let's say, my uh, remark. A, a second remark is that uh, Babalaos are uh, homophobic. They are. Um, uh, mis misogynistic. Yes, that's absolutely true. Uh, but I'm not sure they have the worldview, I would say that, like that, uh, the same worldview as Santeros. What I mean is that they are not so much interested in electricity, 
right. powers. Right. They're interested in science, right. interpretation of science. Right. It's our amenutics. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yes, it's a question of amenutics, right. not necessarily right. of <coughs> transfer of, of of power, electricity, whatever right. power. So. Um, inside inside the, the, the Santeria, if we divide Santeria in yeah. Santeria and Babalaos, mm -hmm. inside the, the community of Babalaos, yeah. um, there's another worldview. You can, can call that ontology, and that, that's my third remark. Um, right. um, I'm not sure that the epistemology of ontology and electricity are compatible. I, I, I will uh, explain myself. I think that the, 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 um, the, the Epistemology of ontology has to do with post-structuralism, post especially Descola, for instance, uh, right now. And a lot of people like Viveros de Gastro, who's working on this very concept for, for around 25 years, let's say. And uh, it has to do with the concept of substance and what is a being. When, when you use this uh, conceptualization of electricity, you're much more with, let's say, the Bergsonian um, uh, epistemology through Deleuze and Guattari, and it's the, you're talking in this case of uh, the, the plan d'immanence that we had in uh, uh, some books of, uh, of Deleuze, exactly what you're talking when you're rejecting the transcendental uh, aspects of Santeria. Yeah. Well, it's exactly what Deleuze and, and Guattari were talking about in Mille uh, uh, Plateau, for instance. Right. But it's different from conceptualization of ontology. So, um, I'm a little, uh, how can I say that, gêné uh, uh, in French? Yeah, troubled, worried. Troubled right. by that. Yeah. By yeah. a competition of, di of different epistemologies, which are not necessarily compatible in the interpretation of yeah. right. what's going on. Yes. But, I mean, yeah. I was amazed, mesmerized. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> 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 it was came from there. Mesmerized by what you were saying. Really. So yeah, that's that's. Uh, thank you for for uh, mentioning that. So I mean, the first thing that's really interesting is um, Ifa and the way in which Ifa is positioned in relation to Santeria, mm -hmm. right? Um, I do agree that Ifa is has a sort of bracketed and, and sort of and the, which is the reason why Chapter Five looks the way it is. So Chapter Five thinks about the differences between Afro-Cuban religions and sort of competing uh, forms of diaspora and these the ways in which the logics of diaspora create create assemblages. Uh, these are sort of these, the, the emerging affective ways that, uh, and, and this is where I'm going back to the sort of Delusian assemblage, um, in, in the notion of diasporas as multiple, evanescent, conflicting, um, sort of attaching to each other and, and, and disentangling each other in different ways. Um, and, and I don't center it strictly through Delusian Vitae, I actually center it through the Caribbean through the rhizomatic formations of the Caribbean. Um, so the analytics of the Black Atlantic and the Caribbean politics have a long history with theorizing through rhizome. Yeah. And, and, and so I actually situate it through that uh, rather than a strictly sort of Delusian Guattari read without that. Um, and, what, and, and so what that allows me to do is, I agree with you, it's not compatible. There are irreconcilabilities. It's not comfortable. It doesn't always feel right, which is why you can see an altar with all of these different sort of uh, uh, constructions, people getting possessed by nuns, right? And, 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 then, and then saluting uh, in, in an indigenous manner. Like these don't leave it. And that's one of the reasons why the Caribbean becomes so sort of problematic for people who study modernity, right? Because it's like this, this primordial site that doesn't, that it's like where hybridity 
emerges, right? It becomes this sort of issue. Um, and I'm not trying to clean it up, right? And, and this is where I, I do follow Matori, which is that there tends to be a sort of pre preoccupation with pristine or keeping things clean that I think, um, that I think is, is just not necessary. And, and so by following the logic of co-presences, which are these sort of energetic momentums, that are tied to conceptualizations of electricity, but have its own religious component, right? And you and you talked about you addressed that, right? Um, and it doesn't need to be electricity, as, it's, as you're right. Said. And it's when in water, yeah. right? There's also this element of water there, and it's both kind of Afrocentric and modern at the same time, right? Um, but there is a language of electric, uh, sort of the electric body, or the body is being electrified by these energies that is uh, uh, that is a, a multiplied form of, of beings simultaneously. But Babalos never get electrified. They don't want to. So, yes, they do, but those are deviant Babalaos. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they're, de they're contaminated Babalaos. They're Babalaos that need to go and get cleansed because, yes, or yes. they're not proper Babalaos, or they get thrown out of Ifa. Mm -hmm. And those are the forms of, that's where femininity gets contaminated. So it's not that there's no language. They understand it, and it's very dangerous. Did you have the last question? Yeah. 
I mean, let me just, just very quickly, I wasn't going to, but I was very quickly, I mean, the way I see what you're reading about the, the co-person seems to me to be, as you know, that's like part of the book, and the thing that goes from beginning to end. And, and, and it is interesting how the particular kind of ontology, but it is a kind of hermeneutic ontology because it's an ontology that's always moving, right? Sure. And the way I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that co-presences that you say co instead of just presences to point to interrelationality, to movement, to, to transformation, to change, right, right? Right, And then the reading that sort of we came to in class when we were talking about this was that movements of, the co of co presences are precisely what make any claim to static authenticity that is what's at issue in some of the later chapters um, untenable. And so I guess, and so that, it's so that I do think that, that gender and sexuality is running through the whole, whole book because there's you know various queer you know santeros that you're talking to that are inhabiting life various forms of inhabiting the spaces that you're talking about, but but the question I would ask that I think is related to the question Suzanne asked is I think you're I mean you say you don't want to judge anybody and yet aren't you making some normative claims at the end of the day and 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 is that okay or can you can you find a place for that to be okay? It depends on what you mean by normative claims. I think, yeah, I think I'm not sort of, sort of I'm not pro projecting a sort of a, a, a feminist way to practice somebody yet. Okay. You know what I mean? I'm not yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, and yeah. I think that that to me is a, a, a different project, right? I am making normative claims in my stakes in tracing new and emerging and past relationships of power. Right. And that's right. And right. so that was what that was like the first thing I said yeah, was. Yeah, yeah. So I am committed to a feminist analytic. I guess I'm the only one in the book that claims that. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. I am committed to a transnational yeah, yeah, yeah. feminist analytic. Right. But that doesn't mean I'm wedded to the identity of feminist. But, right. But and I think that that is. And I think those are two things that become sort of in in in, in sort of. But know, you are interested yeah. in the value of an idea of co-presence over against the value of an idea of a God as absolutely transcendent and other to this world. Well, no. It, it not it, no, 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 no. <laughs> that question. I'm saying that you can't use the God other transcendent okay. to the world to understand, understand Santeria. Yes. Okay. I'm not it's saying right. that it's wrong to have the transcendent experience of okay. religion, okay. nor that all Christianities are transcendental, right, exactly. because there's plenty right. that aren't. Right. But I'm saying for the experience of Santeria as an ethnographer who's tracing these relationships okay. with new media, you can't use mediation and transcendentalism right. to understand these experiences that are just not mediated that way, right? right? And, and and so that's my thing. It's not to disavow transcendental experience or say, oh, boo. It's just yeah, saying yeah, yeah. No, it's so flat. And, and then the way that it's used in social sciences is so flat. Yeah, 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 that it's like there's transcendentalism, transubstantiation. I mean, Maida's written a whole book about right, opening right. up the possibilities of transcendentalism, right? And like how it, you know, so it's like there's so it's already transcendence is already so complicated. But then to flatten it is like global, local, or you yeah, know, the, this, way the, the way that an anthropology yeah, yeah. of religion has done so, I think, is where I take issue. Yeah. So yeah, I do have normative elements, but I'm not projecting a sort of constructivist argument in terms of how people should practice. Yeah. And that's why everybody is there, even the people that I disagree with, right? Right. Um, of course. Right. right. Thank so you I think, so much. Um, Thank we've you had guys. a wonderful conversation of three yeah. rich responses and a wonderful book. And thanks to all of you. Thank for you so much. Thank you.